Wretched Radio begins in three, two, one. To convince a child to keep walking, try switching roles with them. Let the child play the role of the parent. They'll immediately do what you want them to do. You are raising in your home people that the Bible is very clear about their status. They need to be converted. Not just a conformity of their behavior. They need a transforming encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate priority. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Want to get a black belt in the art of disagreement this is wretched radio lots of opportunities to correct folks to point a finger and tell them they're wrong especially when you're like me always right the question of course is how do we do it biblically not culturally not socially, not even biologically, which incidentally sound like the three categories Dr. Greg Gifford used. If you have not heard his podcast, Transform with Dr. Greg Gifford, please get it. It Honestly, the first episode was really good. They just seem to be getting better and better and better. He's a biblical counseling professor. He hosts our Transform TV show, and he's now doing a podcast. I'm telling you, he is slamming it out of the park. It is so helpful. It, it is, it's not to suggest there's no teaching per se. There is, but it's mostly application. How to take what the Bible says and bring it right down to the road, right outside your doorway, and live the Christian life. It is so good. And he's talking about biblical manhood and the categories that he gives. If you recall, these are so helpful. You got biblical definitions, you have got biological definitions for what it means to be male, and then you got cultural. And this can get super tricky. It's not easy to be a man in a culture that is screaming at you to be a woman. Yes, I'm digressing, but I'm telling you, I got to play it, Jimmy. The, this, this, is, this was just from the introduction of Greg Gifford's manliness, how to be a biblical man. And he's focusing not on, not on the biblical right now, but on the challenges of culture. Culture screaming at you, sir and madam, telling you how to behave. They do it when it comes to the art of discourse. This is how a man talks. And we're we're picking up some of those cues inside of the church, aren't we? You, you've got such a variety. You've got these squish bombs. Well, I don't want to say anything because, you know, the world might not like us. On the other hand, you've got some Christians who are like, sit down, shut up, and take it because I know the truth. Which voice do we listen to? That's that's the challenge. And the answer is we got to listen to the biblical voice, because if we just listen to culture, look out, we are not going to be biblically balanced. This is Greg Gifford on manhood talking about cultural influences. In light of your culture, in light of your preferences, and even in light of your own tendencies, manhood can deviate towards your own culture tendencies and personal preferences. So if you're not careful, you begin to think of what makes a man a man based off of your own context and how you envision manhood. Some of you have been blessed with really godly, strong men in your life. And you can look at those individuals and say, that is what a man looks like. And you might be right by and large. Maybe there are aspects of what they do that are godly, strong, manly characteristics. 
And yet others of us, we don't have that privilege. Uh, We were raised by our mom. We had no significant relationship with our dad. The only time we saw him, he was actually very unkind and unhelpful. And so what you judge a man by is kind of an anti, like don't do what I've seen in these other contexts. In that way, we're establishing patterns for manhood and reaction to what we've seen. We've seen a hyper-masculinized man that we don't like. Hyper-masculinity is where we have this John Wayne for Jesus mentality. You know, real men don't cry. They drive four by four trucks. They're kind of rude with their words. They watch football. They bark orders at people. There used to be this show back in the 90s with Tim the Toolman Taylor. And there would be these moments where he would kind of like react in this visceral manly way and he would start grunting like, arr, 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 arr. You guys remember this show? Tim the Toolman Taylor, arr, arr. Are you're working on your car in your garage, you're watching football, arf, 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 arf. well, that's not exactly the way that the Bible is going to portray manhood. And just because that's what you see and that's what you're drawn to, you have to guard against saying, well, that is what it really means to be a man. And anybody that doesn't work on their car in their garage and anybody that doesn't watch football isn't a real man. Arf, 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 arf. Uh, that's one side. But another side is where manhood is so flattened that you don't differentiate between what is a man and what makes a man a man and not a woman. When you flatten manhood so much that you're virtually the same thing as a woman and what you're describing, you're also losing something here. This is where we have effeminate males, males that are very very much like a woman, character traits, social skills, mannerisms, even dress. And you think to yourself, there's something odd about this to me. What is it that's odd about this? Well, if I flatten what is expected of a man and I can't offer the distinction, what makes a man a man and not a woman, now I have trouble. That's where I have effeminate males. Or that's where I have passive males. That's where I have males that lack courage and are weak in those ways. So the answer is not Tim the Toolman Taylor where we say, everybody, get a wrench. We're going to the garage, man. Come on. And the answer is not to flatten malehood to say, well, you know, like we're all equal in God's sight. There's not really a whole lot of distinction. No, there is a distinction. God has created that distinction. And yet we maintain equality between genders. So what does the Bible have to say about manhood? That is the question, because without asking it, we're probably going to come up with the wrong answer about what it means to be a man. And watch this, Jimmy. You didn't think that I'd get back to the subject du jour. How to disagree in a godly way. How to be a Christian man or a Christian woman who says, sorry, that ain't right. I got to tell you, the guy who just keeps flabbergasting me, I I don't know that that is the correct use of the term flabbergast, but Ray Comfort has this unbelievable ability to say, no, that's not right. Why? Because it comes out of him. That's, That's what he is. Nobody would think Ray is a sissy. He's able to say to somebody, no. In other words, he's able to disagree agreeably. This will be a test for you to see if you can do likewise. C.S. Lewis was an individual 
who disagreed agreeably. Why was that a test? Because some of you are familiar with some of the wonky teachings of C.S. Lewis, and you might be going, don't you dare quote C.S. Lewis. I'm not going to quote C.S. Lewis, but we will use him as an individual because the descriptor of him, I I think, is something that we could learn from. Uh, This is from... uh, Bobby Jameson, How to Master the Art of Disagreement in the Church and on Social Media. This is from a student, a former student of C.S. Lewis. And again, this is not an endorsement of C.S. Lewis, but this is perhaps something to ask about ourselves. Do people still like me when I'm done disagreeing with them? Quote, the best teacher I ever had and the best colleague, he did not ask or expect me to share his convictions. Well, that can be wrong, too. His manner might be described as politely merciless. His twin passions by then, apart from literature itself, were people and arguments. But he did not often mistake and confuse the two. He had vigor without venom. He was generous. If I were ever to be asked what I learned from him, that would be my reply. The art of disagreement. Can we disagree in a way that does not compromise? That's the challenge, isn't it? Because you feel like if you're nice, you're actually seeding ground. You're agreeing with them. And you're not. You're striving for being like Jesus. Here are some tips to help us determine when to engage and how to engage. How important is the issue? How big is it? Seriously. And might I just suggest a category distinction might be helpful. Inside of biblical Christianity, you've got yourself some categories. You've got essentials. We, we can't disagree on those and get stay together. There's no unity there. Secondary, we can. We might not be able, probably can't do church together. Tertiary, no, we can just, we can just have a great discussion over dinner and not come to fisticuffs. But let me suggest there's some other categories that sometimes fall underneath theological. I grant you that. Social, political, and cultural issues. You're going to have Christians with differences of opinion about how strong our military should be, uh, about the direction of of the country when it comes to racial issues. Now, these these are some big topics but they aren't theological. They're important, and we do discuss them, but they're not anywhere near the level of essential or even secondary and perhaps not even tertiary. They're just totally outside of that realm. And those are the places where we can just say, I really don't think that I am going to call this guy names and be not pound my fists on the table because we're not even talking theology here. How important is the issue? Uh, That is step one. That's like getting your white belt, maybe your yellow belt, as we seek to get a black belt in the art of disagreement. Next on Wretched Radio. So you aren't convinced of the importance of training godly men to rightly divide the word of truth in churches internationally? Well, then we'll let Paul Washer 
convince you. You have to support men who are elder qualified proclaimers of the word. When we support a man coming out of TMAI, we know not only that he is properly trained, but we know that he will still be supervised. Would you please join TMAI, the Master's Academy International, in advancing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ through expository preaching in local churches around the globe. It's a magnificent ministry and it's so important. Please consider partnering with TMAI at wretched.org slash pastor, wretched.org slash pastor. Thank you for supporting indigenous pastors around the world. Well, thanks to our amazing gospel partners around here, we have been able to accomplish some pretty amazing things in 2023. This past year, we were able to launch Season 2 of Transformed, we launched Wretched Worldview 2, and let's not forget Season 4 of Road Trip to Truth, plus hundreds of hours of Wretched TV and radio. Now, what's possible for 2024? Well, we are excited to tell you about something new that we'll be starting next year. Can't let the cat out of the bag just yet, but what we can tell you is we need your help in order to make it happen. That's why we want you to prayerfully consider becoming an ongoing monthly gospel partner. And right now through the end of the year, when you do that, every donation you give will be matched dollar for dollar. So join us, become a gospel partner today, and together let's make 2024 even wretched-er. In a good way, of course. As you know, we like to talk about MediShare here because it's affordable biblical health sharing. And I actually saw an ad from MediShare announcing themselves to missionaries. How smart is that? What a blessing that might be. If you're not familiar with MediShare, it's an alternative to traditional health insurance, which means it's alternatively less expensive. The average family saves about $500 per month. It's Christians sharing the health burdens of other Christians. It's a beautiful thing. Whether you're a missionary or not, if in that is a need you have, I encourage you, metashare.com slash wretched, metashare.com slash wretched, or call them and talk to a nice person who's going to pray for you. And they will tell you what your family can anticipate. And you can ask questions. 844-34-BIBLE. 844-34-BIBLE. Know your church fathers. Athanasius was the Bishop of Alexandria in the 4th century. He was a champion of the church's fight against Arianism and was a chief author of the Nicene Creed. However, his orthodoxy did not equal popularity. Athanasius was exiled no less than five times, but Athanasius chose to honor God instead of man. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Look at me, Jimmy. I'm actually practicing some self-control in here. Why? Just, just thought I would... Give it a go for a change. Why? Because I don't know what I'm talking about. Oh. Not that that usually stops a talk show host. The point is, this is Wretched Radio seeking to get a black belt in the art of disagreement. I was going to say, for the Christian, uh, getting saved, that you get your gi. You're, you're covered in the white jumpsuit, but then you're given a belt. And when you got a white belt... You can actually hurt people because you don't know what you're doing. So you practice a lot and then you get higher skill level, which means you could really hurt people. But 
You do it in such a way where it doesn't actually hurt them. Uh, see, it doesn't make any sense. Just all kind of <laughs> fell apart right there. But the point is, we should seek to be those who do win arguments. You shouldn't enter into a disagreement saying, well, all I want to do is lay down on this. We should be willing to learn, especially when it's not a primary issue. We don't give in on primary issues, period. We don't even need to discuss them. I, unless it's some sort of academic exercise, uh, if if I were sitting down to have a meal with Gwen Shamblin, which would be probably a piece of lettuce, <laughs> and she started talking about how the Trinity isn't biblical, waiter, check, please. I don't need to discuss that with an anti-Trinitarian. <laughs> Unless, of course, I wanted to persuade them. When it comes to the essentials, no compromise. We talk about this distinction, by the way, in Wretched Worldview 2 is out. Wretched Worldview 2, it is. No, it's not out yet, is it? Uh, Monday, next week. Wretched Worldview is. <laughs> well, I blew it with the karate thing and with the promo. Well, we've been talking about it on TV. We're kind of ahead okay. over there in the studio. And I get, a, I get a little confused with what day it is, frankly. Wretched Worldview 2 is going to be out on Monday? Really? Uh, well, the first. So you're wrong, too. Yeah, well. I, you you're know. in good hands here at Wretched Radio. <laughs> when Wretched Worldview 2 comes out, you'll hear us talk about the difference between presuppositions and pre-understandings. Presuppositions are the essentials. Do we need to ditch those at any time? No. You maintain those. Pre-understandings, those go by the wayside temporarily. And it really doesn't matter what the subject matter is. If you want to do a thoroughly biblical job of understanding the subject matter, you get rid of all of your opinions on it based on culture, the time you grew up, the TV shows you watched, the vacations you took. The, pol the political party of your parents, all of it gets cooked in there. You got to just, now, I'm going to just see what the Bible says about this subject. And then you dive in and you can return to those pre-understandings later. But first, you got to become biblical thoroughly. Then you can see how your former pre-understandings align with your biblical worldview. That resource will be available Sometime before the end of the year, <laughs> basically, at wretched.org. Is that what we're still calling it? Just yeah. in case we've got that. <laughs> How to master the art of disagreement by one Bobby Jameson. Ask yourself the question, how important is the issue? If it ain't an essential, you just might need to dial back the heat a little bit. Number two, how sure are you of your position? Here is something that I see I'm I can do this myself, so I'm not above this. We tend to read the headlines, don't we? They've all got to be salacious. I, you know, I every time we post a video on social media, it is it is a toothache around here because you got to set your hair on fire. But we just don't want to do that. And watch as Todd dominates, controls, and totally annihilates this university student. Not gonna do it, but. You do have to speak in such a way that it does get people's attention. And that is what they do with headlines. It'll say something like, whatever about the politician that you don't like. And you go, yeah, 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 there it is. And then you tell your friend, hey, did you know that Joe Biden did this? Really? And then they start asking questions and you have to go, I, 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 well, I didn't read the article, so I, I really don't know all the details. We're guilty of that, aren't we? 
we don't always have the facts before we shoot, and we should. Number three, can reasonable Christians disagree? You disagree with some Christians? Okay, you correctly believe in believer's baptism. Do you think R.C. Sproul was stupid? No, brilliant guy. R.C. Sproul is like Jonathan Edwards level. There are some of those still to these. They're just bigger brain than the rest of us. R.C. Sproul believed in pedo-baptism. I disagree. If anybody could call anybody dumb, he would call me dumb. That And that would stick. <laughs> that would be accurate. But I can't say that R.C. Sproul was dumb because he's arrived at a different position on baptism. We got to ask ourselves the question, is this something that an, a Christian could reasonably conclude? In other words, oh, come on with the sprinkling, the water and the covenants. What? We don't need to do that. How large is your store? of intellectual sympathy. Can you put down the megaphone long enough to hop into someone else's point of view and take a long, slow look around from the inside? We don't like this because everything is lickety-split these days. It's today's news. Well, maybe it doesn't even make it to lunchtime. I've got to render a verdict, say my piece, and get on to the next headline. Put yourself in their shoes. How do they arrive at this conclusion? Four, can we disagree and be members of the same church? There are sometimes you, you, you can't, sometimes you get, and it really has to do with the outworking of the theology. So for instance, roles of women in the church. Baptism, I think, is another one. I, I would just find it really confusing if I were raising kids and I believed in believer's baptism and they baptize babies. Because then my kid is going to go, well, why can't I be baptized? Well, because you see, the covenant of the, oh, never mind. It just becomes difficult. Number five. Am I prizing the argument above the person? Got to be careful on this one because truth is in the preeminent position. If we lose friends because of truth regarding the essentials, that's unfortunate, but we are willing to accept that. That isn't the level that this individual is warning us about. We're, we're talking about pet issues, secondary, tertiary issues. I, I, I've got truth in preeminent position, but that doesn't come at the exclusion of the person. I care about them. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season how good it is. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. In other words, the Proverbs lay down how we should go about the business of changing somebody's mind. And it's with a word fitly spoken. It's like apples of gold in a setting of silver, patiently persuading, because we want to actually win the person, not just the argument. Number six, am I prizing the issue above the unity of the church? We can't be a factious person. If you are, be warned. You get one warning, second time you're out. It's so bad for a church. The individual, and you've probably seen this individual, just everything, everything, no matter what the Sunday school teachers, every issue. No, you shouldn't have used that preposition. On and on they go. Be warned. Number seven, is this the right time and place for this conversation? Maybe you don't need to comment. Maybe you don't need to say anything now. Maybe you don't need to be on the internet where it can get pretty nasty. Can it? Number eight, how can I disagree in such a way that we leave more unified 
not less. Remember, we're talking about non-essential issues here. We have to have those goals in mind. Fascinating article from a Yale University junior. The title from Yale Daily News is Abort the Conversation. Listen to what she wrote. One of the angriest moments <laughs> I've had at Yale was last year's Bulldog Days when I saw a table that was manned by members of a pro-life group grouped around the table, which was spread with sonograms, fetal diagrams, good stuff. The students were inviting passersby to engage in logical debates about fetal personhood and abortion ethics. They were polite. They held their voices low, and they spoke slowly and calmly. They had relaxed, open smiles. Now, that is that is something I got to tell you. I I, I got to work on that because hey, we're talking about babies' lives here. I love the response. Would you like to discuss this? Let's talk about it respectfully. They insisted. We can debate about this. Their smug civility was infuriating. <laughs> I could barely seethe out my opinion about the misogyny. Well, here comes the therapeutic language. Their words were inflammatory. Simpering, the male students gestured to the only female student with them. Their wide, innocent eyes asked the unspoken question, how could they possibly be misogynist when one of their club members was a woman? All right. This woman got tied in knots. Because she couldn't stand how pleasant they were. That's going to happen. There's no guarantees. A gentle offer, a word can turn away wrath. Sometimes it just, it, it can stoke it. Nevertheless, it's what we're called to. Don't know about you, but I got a ways to go and get my black belt in the art of disagreement. This is Wretched Radio. And it's now time for a Wretched News Break here on Wretched Radio. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Kicking things off down south, the Mexican president has slammed the new Texas policy that cracks down on illegal immigration. The law seems to empower state police arresting migrants to return them across the border pending hearings. But the leader of Mexico condemned the move, saying that no foreign nation can unilaterally deport people. But the last time I checked, sovereign states have every right stopping trespassers from breaching their territory. Something tells me that he'd sing a different tune if the caravans marched on his palace. Anyway, up in Canada, another school board ousted a Catholic trustee simply for opposing LGBT ideology. This is not the first time the veteran school board member lost her seat for questioning a trans book celebration in elementary libraries. Well, now she's suing the district for trampling speech rights and disregarding stakeholders. But the board chair claimed that her traditional views made gay kids feel unsafe. Okay, even if that is remotely true, keyword, her views. But apparently, the millennia-old scriptural values just too disturbing these days. Shifting focus overseas, authorities in China have arrested a church elder in front of his terrified young daughter. 
The pretext involved debunked accusations of a missionary cult that Chinese communism despises. Persecution does persist very, very hardline under President Xi Jinping as the regime continues to erase faith identities outside of the ones that they create and make up and rewrite. Despite unrivaled surveillance and repression, Christianity is still flourishing in underground churches all over that country. Let us pray for courage for our brothers and sisters in China. Some geniuses in our nation's capital tried robbing a high-end store last week, brandishing axes. But they quickly fled after the guard of that store fired a single warning shot in the air. Now, guess what happened? The police in D.C. are investigating that guard because he used potentially excessive force during the armed robbery. I kid you not. Authorities want to make sure the guy defending himself from masked thieves followed proper protocol. How about next time? The guard just helped them load their car. Or he can just try hugging them into submission. Maybe that would appease them instead. And that has been today's Wretched News Break. More Wretched Radio is straight ahead. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Books of the Bible The Book of Isaiah is a collection of prophecies given to Isaiah. It can be divided in two parts. Isaiah delivered bad news to Israel and the surrounding nations concerning God's judgment, and he delivered good news of salvation for those who repent. Isaiah also offers detailed prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, who offers eternal salvation. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Let's go back to the future! This is Wretched Radio. To know the future, you've got to go back. Any excuse to play Huey Lewis, this is Wretched Radio. Eschatology. Some people are infatuated with it. Others, not so much. It doesn't seem to hold much interest because it's complicated. It's difficult to figure out the correct eschatological position. Why? Because you see it spoken about in the Old Testament, Daniel and Ezekiel. You see it in the New Testament. And then you see it in the book of Revelation with language that seems so mysterious. How do we figure this out in an effort to help you navigate the eschatological waters that can be a little bit choppy? Let's go back to the future. This was from the Cripplegate. Let's start out with defining what eschatology is. It means the end. So it's the study of the end. How are things going to go down? Recognizing that there are some challenges to this study. So none of us, even if you hold the wrong position like post-mill or amillennialism, we still have to be willing to say, okay, all right, I'm willing to listen to your perspective because you got good people On all sides of this issue, you really do. And it's not something that should cause separation. It can cause a little bit of challenge in the life of a church. Because if you're believing that it is our job to make things better before the return of Jesus Christ, that's going to be different than the position that says, no, actually, things are going to get worse. And we're just called to be faithful and build the kingdom of Jesus Christ, a.k.a. the church. It could be difficult to get along in applying eschatology, but it shouldn't be a cause for division. The Jews of Jesus' day, this is Cripplegate, had no idea that there were two comings of Christ. 
No wonder they were so confused about his lack of political ambition to conquer the Romans. But when Christ ascended, we understood that prophecies about humility and suffering fulfilled in the first coming. All of the prophecies of conquest and reigning are still to be fulfilled in the second coming. So you got yourself a now, not yet. And we've got to figure this out by understanding symbolism. And that sure can open up a can of speculation, can it? Cripplegate, we teach the doctrine of imminency. But the problem that he's coming, he's coming quickly. Get ready, be ready, be living on the alert. But the problem with this doctrine is that it doesn't mean soon, but rather any time now. So just because Christ can return at any moment doesn't mean that he's coming back this moment. Another danger, and we can fall into this one, trying to make sense of Daniel, Revelation, just kind of, uh, I'm just going to become a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out, and I don't really care. It'll doesn't affect me. Well, it, it really does. Why should you study end things, promise of blessing and encouragement? You can have peace in troubled times. Very practically, Peter says, now that you know that the end will come, how are you going to live? What are you doing about personal holiness, about evangelism? God isn't messing around. Take it seriously. He wants every generation to read about his coming and be serious about spiritual things. The end is near. So with that, let us begin with some definitions, shall we? Eschatology, study of end things. Millennium. It's a thousand year period. Jesus reigning over the earth. Now, this is going to get a little tricky. And I might suggest, incidentally, that um, you perhaps have a new encouragement to get this figured out sooner than later. If my inklings don't 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 ask me what an inkling feels like, but if my inklings are correct, you and I are going to be forced to deal with eschatology, kingdom theology, what our role is here as the world grows darker and darker. This we're gonna we're gonna have to get this figured out. And you're you really should spend a little gray matter energy trying to get your hands around it because it will have an effect the millennium thousand year period where the the nation of israel is restored and this is big the fulfillment of the promises and prophecies given to israel in the old testament that that they actually get fulfilled satan bound the earth is inhabited by both resurrected believers as well as people who are born during the kingdom it's in isaiah Many places detailed in Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Revelation. We, I think for me, the issue ultimately in trying to figure out, all right, which position is this? And, and we'll define what amillennial and postmillennial and premillennial is. The, the key to it is hermeneutics. How do I handle the Bible? was just reading a review, might have been in Cripplegate, actually, been spending some time there lately. They were talking about a crystal, a Christological hermeneutic. And this is a hermeneutic that was used early on. The believers that saw Jesus or that knew an apostle, they were very Christocentric in, well, everything, because it was, well, it was about Christ, Christ, Christ. Well, 
as time has a tendency to do, people will take that idea and they'll expand on it. And it became the hermeneutical principle for centuries that the Bible is allegorical, that we see pictures of Jesus in every verse. Note, not just in every book of the Old Testament, which I think is biblical, Luke 24, that Jesus is revealed in every book of the Bible, but he's not in every verse. And so there would be amazing machinations to try to make Jesus work. All right, Jimmy, I'm going to try to be Christological. Okay. If every single verse in the Old Testament has Jesus in it, then I'm going to go to Second Chronicles. Okay. Is where I am. Note that the acts of Asa, first and last, are indeed written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Well, it's talking, of course, about the king of Israel and the world, Jesus, right there. That's exactly right. That's what I would say. <laughs> well, if you're Christological, <laughs> you would. Luke 24, remember, Jesus didn't say, you can find me in every verse. He said that he was revealed in every book. How do we know where he is? If the New Testament says that back there was a picture of Jesus, you know that's a picture. Hermeneutics is important. And so the grammatical historical interpreted method is the one that we've been really using, evolving a little bit slowly. But nevertheless, since the time of the reformers, where we understand the grammar, we understand the history, we understand the form of literature and we read it to get it. We don't read it literally every single verse because some of it is poetry or proverb or exaggeration, etc., but we read it as the language demands. And I think that if you're going to be consistent with how you deal with Old Testament prophecies about Israel, to say that they've been replaced by the church, um, that's a pretty tall hermeneutical order. Because at some point, you're going to have to make those Old Testament verses about future promises for Israel that clearly have not been fulfilled as being spiritual or allegorical, which means that you have more, at least in part, an allegorical approach as opposed to a consistent grammatical historical approach. Back to our definitions. Second coming, the events that take place around the return of Jesus to the earth. Rapture, tribulation. We hear about the Antichrist, the abomination of desecration. This is also a debated area. Is Jesus coming back once, twice, halfway in the sky to meet those who are raptured? Is he going to just come once and judge the earth? Is he going to actually reign here? Post-millennialism post says that the second coming occurs after the millennium. So the thousand years, if you take that literally, the thousand years, you would say when it's all done, Jesus is coming back. Premillennialism says the second coming occurs before the millennium. And this is where you probably have understood a lot of your eschatology, courtesy of Jim Jenkins and Terry LaHaye. No, Terry LaHaye, Jim Jenkins, Terry Jenkins and Tim, Jim Tim, La Tim LaHaye. Tim LaHaye. Yeah. That's it right there. It's Dallas, that's the sun, right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what dad thinks about that. At any rate, you probably saw that, that that there was some sort of a rapture that people disappeared. Well, I I can't get around 1 Thessalonians 4. Amillennialism is the belief that the millennium is not an actual time period, but rather scripture's descriptions of that time period should be interpreted as being fulfilled in this age, often spiritually. 
There's no millennium. The kingdom of God is on earth now. Well, then, that's interesting. If you believe the kingdom of God is on earth now, our attitude toward governments is going to be different than if you believe in premillennialism and if you believe in postmillennialism. And that is why I do think if my inklings, and I'll try to figure out a descriptor for what those are, just seeing how people are talking about our nation, how we respond as times grow darker, will probably rely at least in part, if not fully, on your eschatology. So we'll continue studying it next on Wretched Radio. I believe in a culture of life. One of the most impactful moments of my life was when I heard the heartbeat of my oldest daughter uh, in my wife's womb and then saw the sonograms of all three of my kids. The sonogram or the, the pictures that are taken of babies, still a profoundly helpful tool, which encourages me to encourage you to consider supporting Preborn Ministries. Preborn Ministries and their network clinics, they are giving away free ultrasounds to women, but they do cost something. It's $28 an ultrasound. And just as you heard Governor DeSantis say, his view of life was profoundly changed when he saw the the baby in the womb when you see the form and the shape and the fingers and the heartbeat would you please consider supporting preborn it's a great ministry of life it has a high anthropology shares the gospel with women and with the dads preborn.org slash wretched preborn.org slash wretched hey hey thank you so much for listening to wretched radio today we certainly appreciate you we appreciate your time and we appreciate all of you who have given it to this ministry over the years. Without your support, we couldn't do the things that we're able to do here. So we are tickled pink that you're a part of it. Now, I do want to speak to those of you that have given to us before, but maybe something came up in your life where you had to stop giving for a period of time. Nobody understands that better than we do. But I would ask that if you are able to maybe possibly join us again as an ongoing monthly gospel partner, we would definitely welcome you back with open arms. We've got some exciting things on the horizon we can't wait to tell you about and we would not be able to do those things that we've got coming up without your support so if you're in a place in your life where you could join us as an ongoing monthly gospel partner we would love for you to prayerfully consider doing that all the answers to any questions you might possibly have about what this would look like is available at wretched.org donate wretched amazing grace amazing gospel i would say the tomorrow clubs is a wonderful ministry kids are getting saved like crazy not just in eastern europe but also in africa and it's so efficient i was just with paul and cindy marty and i asked and it said in, in american currency how much does it cost to have a kid come to a tomorrow club four times a month so every single week what what's the what does it take to make that happen ready a buck one dollar that's it. The kid comes, they get treats, they get materials that they learn the Bible, they memorize a buck because it's it's all volunteer driven. All those dear ones, they're volunteers. It's an amazing ministry. And if you have a heart for the lost in Eastern Europe, Africa, and you love supporting ministries that are super efficient and biblically sound, I would point you in the direction of tomorrowclub.org slash wretched, tomorrowclub.org slash wretched, and ask how many children might I be able to support per month? Know your church fathers. 
Cyprian was a 3rd century theologian from Carthage, North Africa, where he served as bishop until he was beheaded under Emperor Valerian. Cyprian authored a book called On the Unity of the Church, stressing the unity of the universal church as well as the importance and authority of the local church. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. No, I don't think you're a lunatic if you are not pre-millennial. Not, not that post-mills and a-mills are listening at this point. Anyway, this is Wretched Radio. Eschatology, tricky business, but it is going to become increasingly practical, in my opinion. What is our job here? What is our role here? Is it to... Make sure that every realm of our society, whether it's education, arts, entertainment, politics, financial, that that it is under the rule of God. And now even understanding that has implications because, of course, it's under the rule of God. But is that how God is ruling this kingdom? And is it the job of the Christian to try to invade those dominions, to have a mountain of dominion, because everything needs to be under direct rule of God? This is, this is going to become more of a debate than I think any of us ever anticipated. And let's remember this, please, my dear Christian brothers and sisters, if you have not studied eschatology enough to know that it's tricky, then you probably need to study it some more. Do I think my position is right? Well, of course I do, or I wouldn't hold it. But does that mean that I think you're a, a, a complete knucklehead for disagreeing? No, I, I don't. I'll vie for my position. I will try to make the case for my eschatology. But wow, I'm 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 not going to think nasty things about you if you don't agree. And I think we would all do well to arrive at that destination because pretty soon we're going to need to apply that. Let's get back courtesy of Cripplegate to our study on eschatology just to have an understanding that this is this is less of a a demand that you become a premillennialist, more of a just well here's how all of the positions work. And then I'll demand you become a premillennialist. The word tribulation, what is it? The final period of this age before the kingdom. It is a period marked by the wrath of the Antichrist poured out into the world. So tribulation, hard times, as well as by the wrath of God seen through the breaking of the seals, the trumpets, the bowls described in Revelation, Daniel 9 describes the tribulation as a period lasting seven years. Now, I think it means seven years. <laughs> Somebody could say, no, it's symbolic. It's a, it's a perfect period of time. Okay, I disagree. You're, you're not a kook. And I hope you don't think I am either. Well, at least not for this. The tribulation in Daniel 9, lasting seven years, Jesus describes it as a time of great suffering, unlike anything that has happened from the beginning of the world. So if you think that progressives are driving you nutty now, <laughs> it's a warm-up act. The Antichrist, the religious world leader who is opposed to the gospel, while claiming to be here in Christ's name. So it's going to come out of the church. Historically, you do need to know our ancestors were unanimous in their 
their belief, okay, not everybody, but mostly, and certainly all of the reformers thought it's the office of the papacy. See, it's in the church, acting as Christ's vicar on earth. And especially during the time of the reformers, they were seeing the injustices, the cruelties, the promiscuity, the debauchery of what was happening from Vatican City. And they said, that's it right there, because it's inside of the church while leaving room for a final antichrist to come during the tribulation and lead the final assault on Israel. That's another big issue for eschatology. Israel, what do we do with Israel? How do we think about Israel? How do I pray for it? Do I need to pray for Israel? Does God really have a plan for them? And I think the answer is, yeah, and it's inescapable. You have to change your hermeneutic in the Old Testament to an allegorical approach to say, or a spiritualized approach to say that there aren't future plans for Israel. Furthermore, when you read Romans 9, 10, 11, yikes, it sure does seem Israel has got a very clear role to play. And when you read Revelation, the the Jewish people and that particular zip code are clearly in view. The abomination of desolation, that's Daniel 9 where the Antichrist reveals himself in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. Then, of course, you've got yourself the rapture, the physical removal of the church from the earth. The event closes out the church age. Now, remember, the church age, dare I say dispensation, but that doesn't mean the church has replaced Israel because God does indeed turn his attention not just to the world, but in particular to Israel. Post-tribulation is the belief that the rapture happens after the tribulation. The church is raptured and then returns to the earth immediately to reign with the Lord in the kingdom. There are good people who hold that wrong view. Pre-wrath, the view that the rapture happens sometime during the second half of tribulation. Stressing the first part of the tribulation is the Antichrist's wrath on the world, while the second part is God's wrath. And then you've got yourself pre-tribulation. This requires that the rapture will occur before the seven-year tribulation. The church is removed from the earth for seven years, then returns with the Lord at the end of the tribulation. I'm not sure how deep the implications of that disagreement are on that particular aspect, but it is a big deal when it comes to subject of the kingdom What did Jesus pray? Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? Well, it's got to ask the question, what's the kingdom of God? This is a biggie. You're either a one kingdom or a two kingdom person, and it has very big implications for how you think about the country that you live in currently. The kingdom starts when? When did did the kingdom become a discussion point? Then the answer is in the Old Testament. Not just Jesus talking a lot about the kingdom, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, but the covenant that God made with David, 2 Samuel 7. When you, David, your days are fulfilled and you lie down, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Oh, so this goes back to the Old Testament. It's an unconditional covenant with David. That his dynasty, starting with Solomon, would establish a ruling kingdom that lasts forever. And Jesus, the king, is in the line of David, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
That was even horrible for my ears. The kingdom was a visible earthly kingdom clinging to the promise, which is restated dozens of times in the Old Testament, that in royal David's city, the son of David would be born. And sure enough, he was, but not as the military leader. This was going to be a spiritual kingdom that he initiated. Fast forward to Palm Sunday. Jesus arrived on a donkey. Hosanna to the son of David. They thought the Romans' days are numbered. He's going to take over. The forever kingdom is about to be reinstated. But then Jesus died. Uh Uh-oh. Yes, he rose again. But the disciples were even confused. So when they had come together, Acts chapter 1, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? There's talk about the kingdom of Israel in the New Testament. Said it's not your business. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria. You're going to be my witnesses. Acts chapter 8 describes the people that get scattered. What did they do? They preached the word. That's our calling. So there's four major views of the kingdom. One, theocratic government. It's a physical kingdom that must be set up by us, making the whole world Christian and establishing a government that is based on God's law before Jesus will return. So we've got work to do to initiate his second coming. The proponents would say politics is the way to get that done. It's an optimistic worldview. Hey, we can make things better. And it is an optimistic worldview. I, I get that. But you could also argue optimism from any of these positions, frankly. Some would say purely spiritual kingdom. Its kingdom is a synonym for salvation. The promises of David, forever kingdom in the Old Testament, actually refer to a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. And people get that from Colossians 1.13. You need to figure out which one you think this kingdom is. What we're, what we're supposed to be spending our energies on. We, and I would encourage you to get the entire tenor of the New Testament to, to see that, that he is indeed building his church, which is a spiritual kingdom, and which is why he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Then you've got the final coming of Jesus Christ, Kingdom come refers to God bringing history to a close, ushering in the eternal state. So those are all of the words. That's all all the lingo. How do you get it all figured out? I think it's time to dive into eschatology. And so we're going to continue to do that without it becoming a drubbing freel. It's too late for that. So that we can all be thinking rightly about Israel, Jesus' return, the rapture, and the kingdom. Because we're going to need it. And until tomorrow, go serve your king.